I'm curious, how many of you guys in here, raise your hand if you have a child, someone in your family who's starting back to school this, this semester. Raise your hand if that's you. Or if you're in school this semester, raise your hand. Now keep your hands up, all of you. Or maybe you're a, a teacher or you work in some kind of education system, raise your hand too. Okay, that's, that's a good amount of people in here. All right, those of you who raised your hand, let me ask you a follow-up question. It's like the first week of school. How many of you are already tired the first week of school? Yeah, like we're, we're, I got a double hand over here, like running on fumes, and it's week one. Isn't that crazy how that happens? Some of y'all woke up tired. You already need a nap. Like you just woke up, you're about an hour into the day, and you're like, I'm done. You're about to take the next 30 minutes to get a nap in. I see you every Sunday. I watch you. I know what you're doing. You're just, we're just exhausted right now, kind of as a culture and as a people. And I think there's this lie that we believe. If we had just a little bit more time each day, we could get it all done. God, if I just had a couple more hours, everybody else needs 24, I need about 26, 27. So God, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Or listen, I, I'll make it even easier for you, God. If you'll just let me survive on less sleep, I can do the same thing. Just make my body need only three or four hours instead of six or seven hours, and I'll get it all done, God. I just, I'm so close, just a little bit more time. And you think you need more time to get all done what's on your plate. I want to make a suggestion to you this morning that you're not going to believe when I first say it, but I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon trying to prove it to you. You don't actually need more time. You need less time. Now, I know it's, that doesn't sound uncompute, and I'm going to have to prove it to you. But here's what I want to suggest to you. Time works a whole lot like money. Everybody thinks they need more money, but the moment you get more money, you just find more to spend it on. Do you realize the happiest people in the world are not the wealthiest? In fact, some of the, wealth, the wealthiest are some of the most depressed people in the world. They're always anxious. They're going to lose their money. There's always somebody who's got more wealth, has got more toys, can buy more. It's never enough. They say the happiest people in the world are like on the lower, not so impoverished, they don't have health care or education, but close to it. Like they have the basic needs met, food and shelter, basic health care, and then pretty much nothing more than that. But they also don't live around people who have everything else. They just live like in tropical climates, sitting by a palm tree, just enjoying life. Those are the happiest people on the planet. They've done all these happiness index studies of them, and they're happy because they have the basic needs met, but they don't have anything else vying to get more and more and more. They get to sit on their front porch and enjoy their time. And then there's the rest of us on this hamster wheel just going, 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 going because we think we need more. And it's never enough. That's how money works. Time works the exact same way. Let me tell you what would happen if you got an extra two or three hours each day. You would just find more ways to spend that time to get more done. There's a few more emails. There's a couple more home projects. There's a little more exercise, a little more, a little more. And before you knew it, you would be so spent trying to fill these extra few hours with the time that you think you have. If you got less sleep so that you could do more, you would kill yourself trying to do more and more and more. It would never be enough. What you most need is not more time. What you most need are parameters around your time so that you learn how to rest. And that's exactly what the Sabbath is all about. This morning, I'm going to teach you God's rule system to say you don't need more time. You need less time because when you learn how to work six days and rest on the seventh day, you actually have the energy to do everything I've called you to do. And so I want to teach you what that looks like. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. So open your Bibles. Book of Exodus, chapter 20. I want you to see God's design. Now, we have a lot of guests at the beginning of the semester, so many of you don't know what we're doing. We're in a mini-series right now through the Ten Commandments. 
It's a mini-series. It's a part of a larger sermon series called the Book of Exodus. We're just mowing our way to the Book of Exodus. And we've arrived at probably the most famous Old Testament passage, the Ten Commandments. And last week, we looked at the first three commandments. It said, uh, you should have no other gods beside God. Don't bow down to a carved image and don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So all God-focused. Next week, we're going to finish up by looking at commandments 5 through 10. Talks about interactions with others, not murdering, not committing adultery, honoring your parents, all that kind of stuff. But today, we're going to park on just one commandment. It's the longest commandment of all. And the reason we're going to park on it is because I believe it's the one that we least understand. It's the one that we most confuse and that we often dismiss and we don't realize how important it is. So we're going to park on it and see what it teaches us. Exodus chapter 20. Just verses 8 through 11. It's all we're covering. Here's what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So four verses for this one command. Again, the longest one of all the commandments. But let me tell you what's going on in this one commandment. There's actually three parts to this. He tells us what the commandment is, how we live out this commandment, and why we live out this commandment. Those are the three parts to it. First part was in verse 8, what it is. He says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Second part is how we do it. He says, you work for six days and then you rest on the seventh. You, you, You Sabbath, which means to cease. You stop all your work, you and everyone else around you. You pause. And then the third part comes in verse 11, why? And creation is the reason why. Because God created everything in six days and he rested on the seventh, not because he was tired, but because he's setting up a rhythm for us and we're supposed to imitate him. That's why we do it. So we know what it is, we know how to do it, and we know why we do it. But in, in these four verses, what God is trying to allow us to do is to see the gift that the Sabbath is to us. I don't know if you've ever read in the New Testament, but uh, Jesus has some really strong words about the Pharisees and how they, they took up legalistically the Sabbath. And he says something profound, ticked off the Pharisees. He says uh, that man wasn't made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. He's reorienting it. He's saying, listen, we're not supposed to legalistically follow all these rules and regulations of the Sabbath. We're not here to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is here to serve us. It's a gift to us that we're supposed to claim. And I want to teach you this morning the two parts of the gift of the Sabbath. I want to teach you how it can anchor your identity and how it can angle your view. Those two things. If you didn't write that down, don't worry. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. And I really, I want you to park on this because I want you to see how the Sabbath is a gift. So here's the first thing. If you got your notes out on your phone, get them out. If you got a piece of paper, do whatever you need to do. But write these two things down. Here's the first one. The Sabbath anchors our identity in God's work, not our work. I'm going to say that one more time. I really want you to understand it. The Sabbath, it anchors, it roots, it establishes our identity. It's all about identity, not in our work, but in God's work and what he does for us, not what we do for him or for anybody else. So at its core, the Sabbath is all about identity. Here's what you got to remember. When God comes and brings these 10 commandments upon the Israelites, they are trying to discover a brand new identity. I've been talking a lot about identity lately. And the reason why is because just a few months before these Ten Commandments come, the Israelites had a totally different identity. They were slaves in the land of Egypt, and their entire identity was based upon how many bricks they could produce. 
They were slaves, which meant they never got to rest. They had to make bricks, make bricks, make bricks. And if ever they slowed down, there was Pharaoh with his taskmasters to whip them and say, get back to work, you lazy fools, make more bricks. They were defined by how many bricks they made. In fact, there was a moment when Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, listen, let these people go just for three days and they're going to go out to the wilderness to worship God, then they'll come back. You want to know what Pharaoh says? He says, you want to go because you're a bunch of lazy fools. Now I'm taking away even your straw. You got to collect your straw and make the same amount of bricks because all you're worth is the bricks that you make. Now, I'm going to pause right here for just a moment. Let me go ahead and tell you. You live in a land and a culture that wants to define you by how many bricks you make. You live in a land that will tell you you are only worth what you contribute, what you produce. You live in a country and a place that will tell you that you are worth how much money you make at work. If you have a high paying salary, you're worth a lot. If you have a low paying salary, well, you're not really worth that much. You live in a land that tells you you are worth how nice of a car you drive, how big of a house you live in, how nice your clothes are that you wear. That's what you're worth. You live in a culture that tells you you are worth how beautiful your body is, how successful your children are. You live at a job and you work at a place where you are defined by how you contribute. If you don't believe me, just look at what happens as you age in your job. There's something called age discrimination. I don't know if you've heard of it before. People who've been working for 30 years in the same company And the company says, easy come, easy go. You're out. This young guy knows more than you know. He knows more technology. He can do more. You're not contributing enough. You're out. He's in. Maturity, loyalty, that doesn't matter. This person can contribute more than you. You're out. As a society, this is the way we view things. Look at how we treat the elderly, and you'll see that too. We put up with them, put them in a home, put them aside. We'll we'll make sure we do the basic bare minimum, but we're not going to really honor them. There are other cultures that would esteem the elderly. That's not the culture we live in. Why? Because they just don't contribute enough. You live in, in neighborhoods where you're defined by what you contribute how nice your lawn is, how everything looks in your neighborhood. You're you're a part of a friend group and oftentimes a family group where you're determined by how much you contribute to this thing that you're a part of. And the moment they decide you're not contributing enough, out you go. You live in a world that defines you by what you produce. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. And God says, I no longer want you to be defined by what you produce. I want you to be defined by what I produce, not what you produce. And that's a complete shift in identity. And I think it is so important to you and I to go on this shift in identity because we can get trapped on this hamster wheel, going, 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 thinking that we can finally have value if we can produce enough. And we don't realize in the end, we're just slaves. And God says, I don't want you to be a slave to this. Now, going back to the Israelites, here they were. They were slaves defined by what they produced, make more bricks. And God says, now you're free. And here's how you're going to know you're free. Every seventh day, you're going to stop from your work and you're still going to have an identity because you're going to be known by how I have redeemed you, not by how many bricks you make. In fact, this is the very thing that God bases the Sabbath on in the book of Deuteronomy. I'd love for you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to stay in Exodus, so keep your place there. But flip over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's interesting because you get the Ten Commandments again in the book of Deuteronomy. And you get the fourth commandment, and it is almost verbatim to the book of Exodus chapter 20. It has the same three parts, what it is, how you observe it, and why you observe it. The first one, what it is. Instead of saying remember, it says observe the Sabbath, but it's almost the exact same. How you observe it is almost verbatim 
you work six days, you rest on the seventh, and then in that rest, you don't work, you don't let anybody else around you work, you stop your work. But then it comes to the third place, and it says why, and in here, the book of Deuteronomy, the, the answer to the why question is completely different than the book of Exodus. If you remember in Exodus 20, the why was because of creation. God created everything in six days, he rested on the seventh. But that's not what the book of Deuteronomy gives for the why. Look at verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Listen to what it says. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He says, you are now defined not by the amount of bricks that you make, that's what it means to be a slave. You are now defined by my outstretched arm, my mighty hand. You are defined by what I have done for you, not what you do to produce more bricks. You have a brand new identity. And every single time you Sabbath, every time you rest, you are remembering that you have an identity apart from what you produce. But let me go ahead and tell you, if you try to rest and you get antsy and anxious and you start worrying that you're not doing enough, when you start to feel uncomfortable when you cease, that's just a really clear way to show you you're a slave and you don't even realize it. If you can't stop and still have an identity, you are a slave. You are not a free person. And God is saying, I have freed you. I want you to know how to stop and still have an identity. Listen, the first time I started practicing the Sabbath, actually stopping my work, I literally had the jitters. I was sitting at my table, just my leg all shaking, my arm getting all fidgety, because I'm like, I, I got to be doing something right now. I should be outside doing some yard work. Those hedges need some trimming. I, I should be doing a home project. That toilet still won't flush. I got to go fix that thing. I, I could get some emails caught up because I'm so far behind at work. If I could just get a little more sermon study done right now, that'd set me up for Monday. On and on, I just, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. And I could barely rest, and I didn't even realize why. Because I was a slave to my own production. I thought my value was determined by what I produced, and if I ever stopped, I had no value. I know I'm not the only one in this room who struggles with that. God has given us the gift of the Sabbath to anchor our identity, not in what we do, but what in God does for us, so that we can actually stop and still be free. Now listen, that doesn't mean we don't work. We, we are supposed to work. And in fact, there's actually, God, God's pretty subtle this way. He gives two commandments in this one commandment. And one of the commandments is to work. You, you got the first one, verse 8, back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, you shall remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And then in verse 9, he says, a second commandment, kind of hidden underneath it. He says, for six days you shall labor and do all your work. Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying there ain't no room for lazy Christians in the faith. For six days, you're supposed to work your tail off, get all your work done. Work hard, make it happen. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when you get to the New Testament, he, he says some strong words about this. He actually comes up to them in the New Testament in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, and he says that whoever is not willing to work and provide for his family has abandoned the faith and is worse than an infidel. So he's, he's saying you best be working for six days. So this, this is no excuse for you to be 45 years old playing video games in your parents' basement. That's not what this is about, not if you're able-bodied. And how crazy it would be for you to have a basement in Texas anyway. But if you did and you were playing video games, <laughs> he's saying this is not what it means. So you, you don't get to Sabbath seven days. He says six days, work your tail off. No room for lazy Christians. But again, I don't think for you guys, the majority of you, your danger is resting too much. 
I think your danger is finding too much identity in the work that you do. And God is saying, I've given you a gift. It's called Sabbath. And this gift anchors your identity in what God does, not what you do. It's the first part of the gift. Second part of the gift, though, has a different thing. So I want you to write this down. The second part is this. The Sabbath angles your view to see God do more because you do less. I'm going to say that one more time. I'm going to explain this. The Sabbath, it, it reorients, it angles your view to actually get to see God do more precisely because you're choosing to do less. So here's the problem. So many of you don't get to see God do what he wants to do because you're so busy trying to do it for yourself. You don't even understand what it means for God to bless you. There was an interesting thing. So we're back in Exodus chapter 20. And if you were to read verse 11 and again, that part bases it on creation. For six days God worked and on the seventh day he rested. And it says, and therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now that is such an important truth that so many of you just jump right over because you don't understand what it means for God to bless. Blessing is one of those words that Christians use all the time and they don't even understand. When we say blessed, typically we mean like things are going okay in my life. How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. Meaning, yeah, things are going well in my life. Or we say, hey man, be blessed. Meaning I hope things go well for you. That's not actually what the word blessing means in the Bible. There's this, there's this principle of Bible interpretation I'm going to teach you that will help you a lot. It's called the rule of the first mention. What it means is that when you see a word first mentioned in the Bible, that first place it's mentioned, however that word is used, typically that's the way that word is used for the rest of the Bible. It's the rule of the first mention. So you have to look and say, when's the first time the word blessing used in the Bible? Well, that's the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. First time the word blessing is mentioned, it says that God blessed the animals of the field and the birds of the air. And what does it look like? They were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth and the heavens above. So that word blessing meant that they were prolific. They were fruitful. They were abundant. Second time the word blessing is used, is used in an identical sense. Now to humanity. It says the Lord blessed male and female, and then he commanded them to be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, have dominion over, subdue the earth. So again, it's used in this idea of abundance, of being prolific, of being exceptionally, supernaturally fruitful. That's actually what the word blessing means. When you're saying, be blessed, if you're talking to a young married couple, it means have lots of children. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If you're talking about somebody's work, be blessed. May your work be blessed. You're saying, may God supernaturally make it abundant and fruitful. It's a, it's a speaking of God's divine favor to do more with whatever you're doing than you could ever do on your own. That's actually what he's talking about when it says the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. It is saying God can do more with that 24 hours than you ever could. But you don't get to see it because you never stop long enough to see God do what you can't do. This is the very lesson he had for the Israelites. So we're back in Exodus 20. I actually want you to go backwards a little bit to Exodus 16. This is something we covered a number of weeks ago. But there was a, the first glimpse of the Sabbath as it pertains to the nation of Israel regarding the manna. I don't know if you remember this, but they were complaining they didn't have anything to eat, and God gave them manna, which was like this fine, flaky thing that every single morning was on the ground like dew. And what they were supposed to do was go out every morning and collect it. But it was this supernatural bread from heaven that it didn't matter how much they collected, whether they collected a lot or a little, they always had exactly one omer, which was a size of manna for them to be able to provide for their family. 
And they were supposed to go home and boil it or bake it or prepare it however they wanted to. And it's like coriander seed with honey, this delightful bread that they could make every single day. And every morning they were supposed to get it, but they were never supposed to leave it to the next morning. Because if they did, like clockwork, every single night, it would putrefy. It would start to stink. It would get worms and it would go bad every single night. And it says they tested God on this. They tried to keep it over and it would stink and it was nasty. Like supernatural putrefication would happen every single night, except on the night before the Sabbath. And then you begin to see, you begin to see what it looks like for God to bless, God to make something abundant. That's what we're going to jump into. It's Exodus 16, beginning in verse 22. Listen to what it says. It says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So they have this one day where God does something completely supernatural. Two little miracles right here. First, they go out and they collect the manna like they're supposed to. This was on their Friday morning because they had a Sabbath on their, it was a Jewish Saturday. They would go out on Friday morning, they would collect, and it didn't matter how much they collected, whether it was a little or whether it was a lot. This time, they had two omers instead of one omer. God made it twice as fruitful as the day before. In fact, if you notice it, it, it kind of freaked them out, and they went to Moses, and they said, Moses, we don't know what happened, but now we have two omers. And Moses says, people, I know, this is God's design. Here's what God is doing. He's, he's multiplying your efforts so that you'll have enough to keep over for the next day. But get this, it's not just that God multiplied it. God's about to do something even more miraculous. You're going to keep the leftovers to the next day, and it will not putrefy. There will be no worms in it. It won't stink. God is going to supernaturally maintain it for another day so that you can rest. And I don't know what they were thinking, but I'm sure they were going, well, we'll see what happens now. I tried that before. I saw what happens, but, but let's do it. So they keep it over on the side, one omer left for the next day. They wake up and they see it. And here is this manna. For the first time after a week, it is perfectly pristine. Doesn't stink. It's not. No worms. It is supernaturally for the first time maintained. And they wake up and they get to see the miracle of God. Now, you would expect them at this moment to go, glory, hallelujah, my God, look how powerful he is. And for them to rest and praise the Lord. But that is not what they do. You want to know what they do? They go, oh, okay, that's great. But just in case that goes bad, I better go out and get some more manna. Just in case God's provision doesn't work for me, I better go out. This is exactly what happens next. Keep on reading. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. <laughs> the Lord's response is so classic. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. He says, how long will you keep ignoring my commands? When are you going to trust me? When will you stop your work long enough to see my provision? Here's what God is getting frustrated with. Our tendency to be faithless enough to say, well, if I don't protect myself, ain't nobody going to protect me. Not even God. 
If I don't provide for me, ain't nobody going to provide for me, not even God. So I got to go, yeah, God has shown his miraculous provision. I golf clap God. Now I'm going to add to it. I'm going to put my own work with your work and the two of us together, God, we can do it. And God is saying to us, no, I'm the one who provides for you. And until you stop your work, you'll never see how much more I can do with your time than you can. He wants to show his ability to bless, his ability to do more with our time than we ever could. But we have to trust him enough to stop and say, God, not only will you sustain me, but you'll bless me. You'll multiply this. And I trust you. Every once in a while, you get to see this mapped out. You get to see this lived out in real life. But you and I today, we have a prime, beautiful example all over the place of seeing this lived out. It's, it's God's chicken. It's called Chick-fil-A. Any of you, any of you know about Chick-fil-A? If, you're, if, you, if you have some hunger for Chick-fil-A, I'm sorry. You're going to go try to get some today and you won't get it because they're shut down today. You all know it. You've all been frustrated by it. You forget. You're on a road trip. You drive up. Chick-fil-A and it's shut down. And you try not to curse them because it's God's chicken, but you're angry. <laughs> because every Sunday, they shut down all of their restaurants. Six days a week, they're open. Seventh day, they're shut. Now, listen. When they were starting this thing out, True Catholic, the whole team, as they were starting off, everyone told them they were bonkers. Because if you're going to have a fast food restaurant... The two most important days of your week are Saturday and Sunday. It's when people most eat out. He, they, they were told that you are going to be a colossal failure. You'll be a little mom and pop off the side. But until you get over this, you're never going to make it. You're going to be dominated by McDonald's and Whataburger and all the other places out there. You're never going to have any kind, of, any kind of ground in this market of fast food. And now we look up. I don't know if you've done any statistic work on this kind of stuff. You got McDonald's. It'll kind of go up and down like this. I mean, they're everywhere, but they're, they're pretty static. you got some other restaurants, and some of them are slightly climbing. Some of them are, are decreasing. And then you look at Chick-fil-A. They look like this. Just wow, meteoric rise. They are, they're expanding beyond the borders of our country now, going to different places, and they are not slowing at all. You want to know why? Because they're experiencing the blessing of God. Remember what I told you blessing means? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what Chick-fil-A is doing right now. They're being fruitful, multiplying. They're fill, literally filling the earth right now. They told them there's no way it's going to work. And they said, well, I'm going to trust God anyway. And they get to see what it looks like for God to bless. Now, I'm not saying they're always, don't, don't base your faith on Chick-fil-A. Base it on the gospel of Jesus. But I am showing you an example that you can see when somebody says, I'm going to trust your ways, God. You get to see the tangible expression of blessing. And here's what God is saying to you. You're running ragged. You don't have a enough time for anything. You're praying for more hours in the day. And what you actually need to do is trust me. What you actually need to do is remember where all your blessing comes from. This is what he was trying to do to the Israelites. See, they'd gotten in their minds that they were the ones providing for themselves because they were the ones who got up every morning and they got their manna and they were patting themselves on the back saying, look at how I provide for myself. That's why on the Sabbath they went out anyway because they thought, well, I've got to provide for myself. And God didn't let there be any, very specifically, to remind them, hey, guys, where did the manna come from in the first place? Have you forgotten I'm the one who provides it for you? What he's doing, he's creating dependency on him. And that's what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of our dependency on God. But let me tell you why. Why it is so important. Because at its core... All the Sabbath is designed to do is to prepare you and I for the message of the greatest dependency there is, the message of the gospel. 
The Sabbath is designed to open your heart up to understand the gospel. I mean, think about the two things I told you. What was the first one? God anchors through the Sabbath our identity in God's work, not our work. Well, what does the message of the gospel say? The message of the gospel says that there is none of us righteous, not even one person. All have turned aside. All of us do wrong. No one understands, not even one person. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us. We cannot save ourselves. There's no amount of good works, no amount of homeless people I can feed, no amount of money I can give, no amount of church groups I can attend. There is nothing that I can do to earn my way there. I'm incapable. But praise God, God did what I couldn't. He took on flesh and he said, I'll obey the law because you can't do it. Then he went to the cross and said, hey, you deserve to hang here, but I'll hang here anyway so that you don't have to pay the price. Three days later, he came up from the dead and said, now I offer you which you could never attain, salvation. And so the gospel is a message that we trust in God's work, not our own work. Well, the Sabbath just helps us remember that because the whole day of the Sabbath is about remembering God's work, not our own work. But what was the second part? Do you remember? God angles our view to see God do more precisely because we do less. Well, let me tell you what the gospel says. The gospel says as long as you're still trying to save yourself, you'll never see his salvation. He says you have to stop trying to save yourself before you'll experience salvation from the Savior. You don't get to say, Jesus, you and me, we'll do this together. You died on the cross, now I try to behave really good, and the two of us, we're going to save me. That's not how it works. He says until you recognize you are incapable of saving yourself, until you stop trying to save yourself, you'll never experience my salvation. The gospel makes you see that you cannot save yourself. Christ alone can do it. And only when you humble yourself enough to say, I'm incapable, but Jesus, I believe you are, will you trust in Christ to come to you. The Sabbath is just a reminder to change your perspective, to see God do more because you choose to do less. All the Sabbath is designed to do is to prepare you for the message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus. This is why this is so important to us today. The question you should not be asking yourself is, should I observe the Sabbath? I've already explained to you why you should observe it. The question you should be asking is, how do I observe the Sabbath in a way that honors God? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've got about two more hours worth of work to teach you. Literally, I do. But I was consulting with a team, and they told me if that I went for three hours, you would leave and never come back. And so I'm not going to do it. Uh, I have, I've given you a help so that I don't go three hours this morning. And so I want you to do me a favor. I want you to get your phone out again, and I want you to either scan that QR code or you can, uh, you can go straight to fielder.org slash connect. If you're watching online, it's the same place, fielder.org slash connect. And if you go to that place, you're going to see at the very top the thing that says Sabbath, English, Spanish. I'm assuming the majority of you in here, you're English speaking, so you click on English, and it'll give you a PDF file for you to be able to look at all the details of, of how to celebrate the Sabbath well. And this is my gift to you. You have a little bit of homework. You're going to go home and you're going to pull this PDF out and you're going to read it to learn how to begin to practice the Sabbath in a healthy way. But I'm not going to dig into it right now because we just don't have time. But I'm going to give you three overarching 30,000 foot level principles that I want to finish with to help you understand the most important parts. Here's the first part. The moment it becomes legalistic, you have killed it. Don't do it. The Sabbath was never meant to feel legalistic. And so if ever it starts to feel onerous, like 
like it's legalistic, like it's prescribed and you have to do it, you should give it up. Jesus, remember I told you, said that man was not made for the Sabbath to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to serve man. It was a gift to us. It must never become legalistic in how you celebrate it or how you expect the people around you to celebrate it. That's rule number one. Rule number two, you don't have to celebrate it on the Jewish day of Sabbath. The, the Jewish people celebrated it from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. That was the Jewish Sabbath. But Christians have been freed from the celebration of the Jewish calendar. In fact, if you go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul speaks very clearly about this. He says, you don't have to follow the rules and regulations of new moon festivals and Sabbaths, he said. In other words, you don't have to align your weekly calendar with the Jewish Sabbath. In fact, the early church didn't do that. They celebrated the Sabbath on the Lord's Day. That's on Sunday. For, for most of us, the, the most important thing for us is six days on, one day off, that rhythm. Now, worship is supposed to be a very important part of the Sabbath, which is why I would recommend for the vast majority of you, you align your rest day on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, because you already have built-in time to gather together for worship. Six days on, you work hard. Seventh day, you gather together and worship. And because of this, uh, we've prayed through this and made a decision as a leadership team that we want you to know about. We are going to do everything we possibly can to free up Sunday nights for you guys. We, we've had a number of things come up on Sundays, the trainings for mission trips, training for children's ministry. We've had uh, all kinds of deacons meetings and group activities on Sunday evenings kind of crept in as we've been praying. It felt like the Lord saying we're supposed to clean it up and say we come to gather together to worship on Sunday morning and then we rest. Now, we're not going to be legalistic about this. Remember, the moment it gets legalistic, we're in trouble. So there may be from time to time something that might crop up on a Sunday evening. We're not going to be legalistic. We're just going to work hard not to plan things on Sunday evenings. And it doesn't mean you can't ever meet with your community group or your D group. We're not going to be legalistic. The question is just, does it feel restful or not? But I, I, I believe this is a gift the Lord wants us to have on Sunday evenings where we stop. And I want to encourage you. It's going to be so easy for you just to start shoving other activities now that you don't have church things going on. And I want, to, I want, to, I want you to fight against that temptation. And to say, no, I'm going to rest. That's what I'm going to do on the Sabbath, on my Sundays. To which you go, okay, Jason, I hear you, but what does it mean to rest? I mean, does that mean I just got to like sit in the lotus position for like hours? Is that, is that what rest means? Do I just stare at the wall? I mean, what can I do? What can I do, Jason? Come on, just tell me. Like, it, is it okay for me to watch TV or not? Because, you know, the Cowboys about to start playing on Sundays again. Is that, is that okay? Is that... Oh, can I go play sports? Can I work out? Can I do laundry? Can I like, just go ahead and give me the rule set, Jason, what's allowed, what's not? Go ahead and tell me. And, and I know you want me to tell you. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, I will not tell you. Because the moment I tell you what's allowed and what's not, you're going to make it a bunch of rules and it's become legalistic. I won't do it. I refuse. But I'm going to tell you how you decide what to do and what not to do. One very simple principle. Does that activity cause you to delight more in God over everyone and everything else, then do it. If it robs you of your delight in God, don't do it. It's as simple as that. Just every activity, put it under that, that framework. Does it increase your delight in God? Does it make you honor God and worship God and delight more in him? Do it. If it robs you of delight in God, don't do it. That, the, 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 yeah, it's, it's iffy with the Cowboys. You never really know whether it's going to increase your delight or not. 
Maybe one season it is, one season it's not. Depends on how it's going. But I, I want to encourage you, let that be your framework. In the list that I gave you in that PDF, it's got some suggestions of the types of things that might rob you of delight that you should avoid and the types of things that will likely give you delight and you might want to consider. But the most important thing is for you to say, oh God, what's going to increase my delight in you? Because at the end of the day, that's all God wants for you. The Sabbath is a day for you to remember what you were created for, to delight in God. That's what I want to end with. That's what I want to remind you of. God created you to delight in him, to find joy in him. I love what John Piper said in the book, Desiring God. It's an incredible thought. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we find our joy in God, when we're satisfied in who he is, that's when he gets glory. When there are thousands and thousands of people in this city who just delight in God, he is lifted high. He wants us to delight in him. He wants us to be bounding with joy because of our God. And so my question for you is, is this how you see God? Because I think there are a lot of people who see God as mean and demanding and controlling, out to rob us of our fun, when in, in the end, he just wants us to delight in him, the greatest source, the source that never changes. So that's my question for you. That's what I'm ending with. This morning, are you delighting in God? Because if you're not, one of two things is robbing you from that delight. You may have some kind of situation that's making delight really hard, and you need God to bless you. Or maybe you feel far from God, and you need to be made right with God. You either need the blessing of God or to be made right with God. You need one of those two things this morning. And that's how I want you to respond. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. But before we do, I want to say there are many of you in this room, you're believers in Jesus. You've been reconciled to him. You've expressed it through baptism. I mean, you've, you've done all those steps, but you're still struggling this morning to find delight because of some circumstances in your life. Here's what I want you to remember. Our God is supreme and he wants you to delight in him. So what do you do? You take whatever that thing is that's robbing you of delight and you place them at the foot of Jesus. And you do that through prayer. This is why we have prayer team members who will be down front. They're ready to receive you so that you can lay this burden down at his feet. And God's going to do one of two things. Either he's going to resolve your situation through his supernatural blessing, or he's going to change your heart so you find delight anyway. But either way, he wants to restore delight to you. But you won't have it till you ask for it. Book of James says you have not because you ask not. Don't be that person with this burden who doesn't ask. You'll have a chance to ask to lay that down and say, God, I want to delight in you. Change my heart or change my situation, but bring me back to delight. But then the second group, there are some of you, and I know it, every single Sunday there are some of you here, and the reason why you find no delight in God because you feel so far away from God. The reason you feel far away from God is either because you have sin in your life that has not been dealt with, and you know that you're broken, and you know that that sin has made you unrighteous and far from God, or you're believing the lies of the enemy that's telling you that you're worthless because of your sin, that God doesn't love you anymore, God doesn't care for you, he's angry with you. And I want to remind you, those are lies. God loves you. He wants you to delight in him. But you got to come to him. you got to be willing to humble yourself and say, God, I can't save myself. I'm ready to stop trying. And remember what I said earlier, not it's you and me, God, we'll do this thing together. It is, I got nothing, God, I'm broken. I can't save myself, I can't heal myself. I trust in you, God, but I do trust that you can save me. And so 
Oh, Jesus, forgive me my sins. Take away all that's been keeping me and reconcile me back to the Father so I can find delight in him again. And he'll do it if you just trust him. And you trust in his work, not your own work. There's a baptistry on stage for a very clear reason. There are some of you who are slaves to your own sense that you've got to produce and that person needs to die. And there needs to be a new person who comes out of the water with a brand new identity who says, I am now who I am because of Christ, not myself. And some of you need to be crazy enough to say, today I'm going to become a brand new person. Comes through faith and obedience. And we're going to be ready to meet with you, counsel with you, but you've got to come. I invite you to stand up right now. I invite the prayer team members to come down front. If you need to pray to take whatever that thing is that's robbing you of delight, you come. If today you're going, I'm ready to find Christ. I'm ready to be reconciled to God. I'm ready to find delight in him, to be forgiven of my sins. You come, let us know. Today you can become a new creation in Christ if you just come. I invite you, respond as you need to.